0: All right, welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. In this session, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And really, chapter 2 of Romans is one big point, one big argument, but we're going to break it into two chunks just for the sake of time on the recordings. And so know that we're getting kind of like part one of the argument in this session, part two of the argument in the next session, but it all really goes together to make one point. And as we arrive at Romans chapter 2, here's kind of the picture we need to have in mind. At the end of chapter 1, Paul has thrown the net incredibly wide, right? He's talked about how mankind has chosen idolatry and worshiping the creature over the creator and how that has manifested itself in inappropriate sexual behavior and desire. He's then thrown the net incredibly wide right at the very end to all these things that just show up in life. Malice, anger, slander, gossip, disobedient to parents and all sorts of just fairly quite common bad behaviors. Well, in that scene, then, chapter two picks up by saying, therefore, you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. So here really is the picture to have in mind as, say, a good and faithful Jew or even perhaps a pagan moralist sits there listening in on Paul condemning the immoral pagan at the end of chapter one, right? He's just pointing out how he's without excuse, how he's fled from God, he's worshiping idols, and he does all these awful things in that massive catalog of uh, bad behaviors at the end of chapter one. What's What's the good faithful Jew, or even the pagan moralist of Paul's day. What are they doing as they hear Paul condemn this immoral person in chapter one? Well, in essence, what, what they're doing is they're going to be nodding their head in agreement. That's right. That's what I've been saying all along. Amen, Paul. Preach it, Paul. You're right. Dead on. That person is justly condemned. And so that's the picture you need to have in mind as we open chapter two, because They're nodding their head. They're agreeing, right? Uh, When Paul says, oh yeah, that person deserves to die and be under God's wrath. They're fully agreeing with Paul on this. And they're thinking, yes, yes, yes. People who do such things do deserve to die. And then Paul begins chapter 2 by saying, therefore, you have no excuse. And he turns and points the finger to them. He points the finger at the good moral person, or the faithful Jew of his day, who thinks they're right, who clearly does live better than the immoral pagan, right? And yet, they've done some of the very wrong things that Paul has described at the end of chapter one. And so, see them sitting there cheering Paul on, nodding their head, applauding, amening, right? Saying, you're totally right, Paul. Preach it, Paul. And then have Paul turn the the tables on them at the beginning of chapter 2. Now, before we look at the details of chapter 2, 1 through 16, just keep in mind the overall big context of the section we're in. Paul began in one eighteen to mount a case against mankind, making the point that all mankind is equally disadvantaged before God. He's making this point in order to establish why God's righteousness is for all people The same way, by faith in Jesus the Messiah. And so in chapter 1, 18 through 32, Paul began with the obvious, the immoral pagan who stood justly condemned and the faithful Jew and even the good moral pagan would have agreed with Paul on that point. And so as they agree with Paul on that point, they are effectively, Paul is going to say, condemning themselves because they too do some of the very same wrong things that Uh, They are condemning the immoral pagan for doing. And so he's building this case. And here in chapter two now, he has left the immoral pagan and he's moved to probably primarily the faithful Jew. But even the good moral pagan, he's saying that, look, you're without excuse as well. You just as they are without excuse you're without excuse. Why? Because you do some of the same things that they do as well. And thus, since you agree that those deserve God's condemnation, you should look in the mirror, point the finger at yourself because you deserve God's condemnation as well. And thus, we're all equally disadvantaged before God. We all stand condemned and we all need God to bring his saving justice to us the same way through faith, and the Messiah. So that's the big context, all right? Now with that, let's jump into some of the details here of chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now, the first thing to note about chapter 2, verse 1, is that the you is singular. It's not you all, as is so often the case in the New Testament, but it's singular. We lose that in translation because we just don't have that distinction in English language. But he's saying, therefore, you, you individual. So Paul, again, is picturing Uh, these people and he wants to really make this personal and say if you're over there on the sidelines cheering Paul on for condemning the immoral pagan just know that you yourself individual you you too are without excuse every one of you who passes judgment each and every one of you He's, he's singling out the individual making sure we we know that we too are without excuse so therefore you have no excuse every one of you who passes judgment and Paul's point is not saying that everyone who judges is condemned because they're judging. Paul's point is that everyone who judges is condemned because we've all done some of the thing the same things that we're condemning others for. So notice, he says, for you who judge, practice the same things. And so, you're cheering Paul on saying, oh, that's right, that guy is condemned, that guy deserves it, he deserves God's wrath. But you've shown malice, you've gossiped, you've slandered, you've disobeyed parents, right? You have done some of the very same wrong things that you think he deserves to be condemned for. And so Paul's point is, really, he's saying, like, you're totally right. People who do those things do deserve to be condemned. And guess what? You've done some of the very same things. Paul goes on in verse 2 and says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Right? Like He's just agreeing with them. Yep, you're right. God's judgment does fall on people who practice those things, and you've practiced them. Then he goes on in verse 3 and says, But do you suppose this, O man, again, the individual, the singular you, do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same things yourself, That you will escape the judgment of God. So, do you think that somehow, just because you're there condemning those people for doing them, God's gonna let you off the hook, even though you do some of the very same things? Of course not. Now, Paul goes on in verses 4 through 11 to essentially make the point really say, here's the underlying theological rationale for the fact that even to pagan moralists and or, or the faithful Jew are justly condemned when they do wrong. The, the underlying theological rationale is this. There's no partiality with God. God holds all people accountable to the exact same standard. So just because maybe you don't do as much or do it as often, you still do it. And thus you're justly condemned. Let's read through verses 4 through 11. Or, do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance, and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. So God's being merciful to you. He's been kind to you, right? He hasn't poured out his wrath on you. And somehow you're going to take that lightly, even even though it's supposed to lead you to repentance. But, verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. See, God's impartial, and God's going to hold each people, everybody, accountable to what He has done. Uh, When He says in verse 6, who will render uh, to each person according to His deeds, that is pretty much a direct quote from Psalm 62, 12, or Proverbs 24, 12. Both those passages say essentially the same things, and it emphasizes God's justice in judgment. God's going to hold each person accountable, and each person is going to be. Uh, render an account for the things they've done. Paul then clarifies exactly how this is going to play out. Verse 7 and 8. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. God's not partial. God's going to hold each person accountable for what they do, and it's going to, be, uh, it's going to play out this way. Now, some scholars, afraid of uh, the idea of salvation by works, have said, oh, what Paul is saying in verses 7 and 8 is purely hypothetical. If a person could be saved by their behavior, this is the way it would work. But there's nothing in the immediate context that says that's what Paul is doing. Paul is emphasizing, really, the justice of God and the way God really is holding all people accountable. Um, so he's not he's not giving a hypothetical case. He is describing the way God's justice works. God genuinely holds people accountable for their behavior. In fact, what Paul says here, uh, he says elsewhere where it's totally clear that Paul is saying this is just the way judgment's going to work. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10, Paul actually alludes to the very same Old Testament passage about rendering to each person according to his deeds. And he says that's the way judgment's going to work. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to be repaid for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Um, Paul had no problem holding together the ideas that every one of us are justified as a gift by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And at the same time, we're going to be judged according to what we have done. And the reason Paul could hold those together is seemingly because the perseverance in doing good now focuses on following and obeying Jesus. Not perfectly, not completely, just being faithful to Jesus. And people who do that are going to to be absolved of any wrongdoing because of what Jesus has done. And so Paul here in verses 7 and 8 is simply describing God's impartiality. He is going to hold all people accountable for their behavior, and God will judge people fairly. So the force of what Paul is saying is this. Yes, the Jew or the moralist disapproves of the bad behavior that Paul described at the end of chapter 1, but he does it anyhow. Surely he can't seriously believe that just knowing this is bad and yet still doing it somehow makes him superior to or gives any advantage to him with God, can he? Like, No, he can't. Like God's going to hold all people accountable for what they've actually done. Not just because they know something is wrong, but what they've actually done. Now, then going on in verse 12, Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Who are those who sinned without the law? Those would be Gentiles, right? Non-Jews, those who or non-God fierce, right? These are people who don't have the law of God. They don't know the law of God. Prior to the coming of Christ, right, the law of God was located with, within the Israelite nation and any Gentiles who came into the Israelite nation to learn the law of God. So those who have sinned without knowing God's law are going to perish without the law. But at the same time, all who have sinned under the law, who is that? Well, those are Jews. So all who have done what's wrong, broken the law, who have sinned under the covenant of God's law, they're going to be judged by that law. They're going to be held accountable by what the law says. Uh, For it's not the hearers, verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So, okay, O Jew, you recognize certain things are wrong. You stand there and you applaud Paul's condemnation of the immoral pagan, but you do some of the exact same wrong things they do. And guess what? God's going to hold you accountable for that because just knowing something is wrong isn't enough. You actually have to do what's right. So just hearing the law and knowing the law, well, that doesn't make you right with God. You've got to actually be a doer of the law. It's those who are doers of the law who will be justified. He goes on in verse 14 and says, For when Gentiles, non-Jews, who don't have the law, do instinctively the things in the law, these not having the law, are a law to themselves. What's he getting at? Well, what's he saying is, you here you have the Gentiles. They don't have the, the teaching of God's law, right? They don't have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They, they don't know God's truth, and yet they do some of the very right things that that law teaches. They can be faithful. They can be loving. They can be kind, right? They can do some of the things. They can be just. They can do some of the things that the law teaches. And so, in a sense, they're a law to themselves, meaning that they they demonstrate that there is a general moral law, and they are actually keeping that law by doing some of the right right things. And he says in verse fifteen, in in that they are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternating, accusing, or else defending them. And what Paul seems to be getting at is that mankind in general, even pagan mankind who don't know the scriptures, they have a built-in sense of right and wrong. and, And when they do what's right, Man, their conscience defends them. When they do what's wrong, their conscience accuses them. And they just have this built-in sense of right and wrong. Uh, that's a pretty, actu- pretty easy fact to observe and to uh, defend. Like Virtually every culture throughout history has largely the same categories of right and wrong. They might put different specific behaviors in those categories, but they have the exact same categories, right? Like courage is right, cowardice is wrong. Honesty and truth-telling is right. Uh, deception and lying is wrong. And virtually every culture has that. Paul, simply saying here, he's saying that when you look at Gentiles who don't know the Scriptures, and yet they do some of the very right things in the Scriptures, they testify that they know a basic sense of right-wrong. They have a basic moral framework. Um, And their conscience either accusing them or defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men's hearts. Interestingly enough, some faithful uh, rabbis and Jewish teachers would have totally agreed with what Paul says here. Paul isn't necessarily saying anything radically new or radically different that the Jews of his day wouldn't disagree with. Like faithful Jews would have agreed with what Paul just said in verses 12 through 16. Uh, they, We know that faithful Jews believe that the Torah was a gift to them. Some saw it as a gift of grace. Some saw it as, well, the na- no other nation would receive it, but we did. And so it led to superiority. And Paul is dealing with that superiority issue here. And yet faithful Pharisees and rabbis would be quick to know that just having the law and hearing the law weren't weren't enough. Uh, that the law must be kept, right? They knew that there were unfaithful and unobservant Jews among them. And so they too would say the same thing Paul says, like just having the law isn't enough. And so Paul's really arguing in verses 12 through 16 from an agreed upon position among the faithful Jews, faithful uh, uh, Jewish teachers of his day, that just having God's law isn't enough. In fact, there are some Gentiles who actually are pretty decent people and actually implicitly keep God's law, even though they've never learned God's law. And thus, uh, just having the law itself, having Torah itself, doesn't automatically advantage you. Just being a Jew, going to synagogue, and knowing the scriptures— doesn't automatically give you an advantage with God and make you right. You've actually got to do what it says. That's Paul's point here in in chapter 2, 1 through 16, that um, Israel's privilege of being God's people, of being given the law and knowing the law in and of itself will not automatically make them right with God. In fact, from the Jewish perspective, most Jews of Paul's day would have all agreed they were still operating under the curse of God's law that led them into exile, that God's glory hadn't returned to the temple. And so they were still under the curse because of their their disobedience and their faithlessness that led to the exile. And so Paul is simply pointing out the fact that if you're going to stand there and you're going to condemn the immoral pagan just know that if you have one finger pointing at them saying yes you're wrong 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 you got you got the rest of your fingers pointing back at you you do some of the exact same things and you are justly condemned as well and by way of implication to wrap up this section i would just note that we're living in a different stage in history and yet it's so easy for people who grew up in the church And thus know the Bible to have sort of the same superiority complex that Jews and Paul's day had. And to think that just because, oh, yeah, I grew up going to church. Oh, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, yeah, I kind of know the Bible. Oh, yeah. Right. And we can we can minimize our own wrongdoing. We can minimize our own sin. And we can somehow think we are fine simply because of our heritage, simply because of our upbringing, simply because of our past. And we claim the name Christian, but we're not really actually following Jesus. And so we can be guilty of the exact same problem that the Jews of Paul's day had and that Paul is calling them out on here in Romans chapter 2, 1 through 16. And so we should read this text and we should humbly stand under this text and let it challenge us to say, I recognize that I too do some of the very same wrong things that I condemn other people for, I need the grace of God found in Jesus. I need the justifying work of Jesus too.